Hello, computer. This is Hello, computer. A series of interviews carried out in 2023 at a time when artificial intelligence appears to be going everywhere all at once. Our next interview is with Megan Mars of Michigan State University. And please note, this video does include some pretty graphic language about the use and abuse of pornography. My name is Megan Mars. I'm an assistant professor in human development and family studies at Michigan State University. And I research sexual development or socialization, but the role of media and how it shapes that process. And you just can't ignore how AI is essentially taking over all forms of media. And so therefore is going to have an impact on our sexual development and socialization. How has your year been? I mean, AI is everywhere in 2023. Does it feel like a normal year to you? It's the first time I was uh, introduced to chat GBT, you know, like the rest of the world. Um, and in that type of thing, there's certainly a lot of sex tech conferences and you know, webinars and things like that floating around. Um, but, you know, in terms of my year, it's pretty typical, um, not not too different. So if, if this year has been reasonably typical, um, could you give us an overview of your work? I mean, on a, on a typical week or a typical month, who are the type of people that you're speaking to and what do you what do you talk to them about? On a weekly basis, if not multiple days a week, the the majority of the folks I speak to are college students in my human sexuality class or in other in other classes. Um, and so but, you know, it's a it's a two way conversation. So I also get a lot of information from them. Um, but in terms of other audiences, I get invited to speak for a lot of educational conferences where we talk about the role of you know, sexualized media, particularly sexting, sexualized social media um, for kids at school now, right? Because they've got their devices during school hours. So that's become a new thing. Um, I get invited to talk with parent groups because a lot of parents are, you know, have no clue how to talk about porn with their um, adolescent kids. And then I also, you know, talk with other sex scientists, sex researchers, sex educators, and those kinds of spaces as well. Um, but I definitely enjoy uh, discussing my own work and, you know, translating science for general audiences um, more than I do, you know, writing grants and managing paperwork and that type of thing. So I do... Uh, enjoy these conversations for the basis of this conversation just so we can um, you know place a framework here what what is the purpose of porn oh that's a good question um so i think what the data would tell us now is that the purpose of porn really is pleasure arousal and exploration from the consumer perspective now from the production perspective um, it really has always been about profit. Um, and then in the worst case scenarios, it's been about exploitation as a means of profit. Um, so it's a very different experience for the producer and the creator or, and the consumer. Um, but we're starting to see some of those, those two worlds overlap more, where more consumers are becoming producers themselves. Um, but in general, I would say that it's still adult entertainment 
but we're getting more real about the use of porn for pleasure specifically and for and frankly for just helping with masturbation and arousal and and as that kind of a tool is that something that is, is required then the, the 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 requirement of arousal is that something that's required you know, it's not. Um, a lot of folks are, especially younger folks, you know, have become pretty accustomed to using porn as their primary means for arousal, particularly for masturbation. But, um, you know, like I've, I've talked about in um, some of my written work and certainly in, in interviews and talks, um, people have been sexually aroused by other people and by their own imagination um, by and large, across cultures and across time, that has been our primary source of arousal. And so we don't want to forget that in in the midst of, of all this tech that can make arousal certainly more easy, but um, it's not required. Well, perhaps um, a, a historical overview. How did we get from cave paintings... Um, and and uh, and uh, Roman frescoes to um, to OnlyFans today. You know what 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 was the process of us going from that from that to, to today? So I think a lot of people who do porn research or who research you know the history of erotica would agree that um, technological advances across the centuries has made. Um, you know, porn and erotica more accessible. Um, we're certainly going to use it more. And in fact, what's interesting is the reverse is also true. In in really more of the recent past, you know, hundred years, um, sex has really driven advancements in um, in the technology itself. So I'm sure you may have heard of you know, that the internet was created for porn to distribute, you know, sexually uh, explicit images, um, television, VHS, beta tapes, DVDs, and in large part were created to distribute pornography. But um, but in terms of an overview, one of the things I argue in my um, TEDx talk is that it it's certainly been a common trend where technology is driving um, the advancements in porn, um, but sex is really driving a lot of the technology, but that's recent. Now, if we flash back, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, uh, we're really talking about erotica. So some people like to say, oh, we've always had porn because we've always had these cave drawings. Um, but thinking about that purpose of porn, the cave drawings were not about making money. The cave drawings were not about masturbation specifically, but they were about this creative um, sort of just human way of trying to understand this amazing aspect of our lives. And so we always see um, sex depicted in art, which is the Greek root words for erotica, eros and etika. Um, you know, we see that across time, across culture. So we really want to understand sex and love um, and express it creatively. Now, it wasn't really until, and then when we saw this um, development over time, erotica became uh, more commonplace, but it really started out as something that was for rich 
um, noble people who could pay artists to paint beautiful, you know, Renaissance paintings of naked, you know, folks. Um, and, and that type of thing it wouldn't be something that somebody would just come across and masturbate to, right? Um, and it wasn't until we had the invention of photography in the late 1800s that we started seeing, you know, people using that photography for pornography. Um, and again, that's where we start to see some of this gray area between what might be obviously porn and what might be obviously erotica, because we're seeing it go from paintings to actual imagery of real people. But um, it wasn't until photography was cheap and it really was not that cheap until like the 1950s and 60s that we have then mass distribution of images of breasts, vulvas, people having sex. So you used to have to travel quite a long ways to see, you know, naked images or peep shows in those little viewfinders. Um, you know, you'd have to travel to New York, San Francisco, London, um, a major metropolitan area, and maybe see that once or twice in your life. So the technology has certainly made porn and erotica and access to it more um, commonplace. And it has certainly shifted it over time, but we've, we, it, it's not a new, it's not new that, um, it's not a new concept that technology is driving this sexual imagery. So you say then that the, um, the internet was perhaps built um, for porn and for cats, I would say as well. Yeah. For, for cats. <laughs> Good on cat. Um, yeah. Uh, and my own little take on that, my my belief is that the VHS versus Betamax war of the seventies and eighties was won because VHS had the more had more porn films, is my understanding. So yeah, I, I can understand that technology and porn have been um, have been a thing for a while. But let's expand. I mean, what what did how did the internet change things then for pornography? Yeah. So. Um... Early in the internet porn research days, there was this term called the three A's. So the internet made porn um, more available because everybody had, you know, can have more easily, more easy access to the internet um, and therefore easy access to porn. So for example, you know, prior, prior to the internet, you either had to find, you know, your friend's porn, your parents' porn, a, a, you know, a siblings porn, um, or you had to be 18 to purchase it. Whereas now with the internet, you can be any age and see any kind of porn. Uh, it made the use of it anonymous for that kind of similar reason that you could go online, look at whatever you wanted, delete your internet history versus like having a stash of porn for somebody to find. Um, you could have a pretty deep, um, rabbit hole of porn, you know, uh, experiences that could really kind of go undetected from those around you. Uh, and then it made it affordable because it's, you know, cheaper without production costs, uh, shipping costs, distribution costs, um, costs of materials for DVDs, things like that. Uh, internet porn in its early days was free and cheap. And then now, as you can, as you know, with the, the tube sites, um, it's even cheaper. It's free. So it's 
increased the availability and the use and the frequency of it. Was that a major turning point in in the in hi- the history of porn? The fact that porn is effectively free these days. Sure, it is. I mean, we do. We didn't have a ton of great national data on pornography use prior to uh, the internet, and certainly high speed internet at the turn of the uh, century or millennia. Um, but what we do know is that if you look at some of the studies of frequency of pornography use before the internet, uh, you'll see a lot more of, you know, um, averages ranging in multiple times per year versus now we'll see studies where it's very common to see multiple times a month or even a week, um, you know, or even with some cases, you know, even daily use. And so we do know that the internet has made pornography experiences more frequent for folks. The millennials, the, uh, the, the generation that are coming of age now, uh, are they having a fundamentally different experience with sexual images that, that just is, there is no comparison to the generations that went before them? So, yeah, so I would think so. I think what you're referring to is, is more of Gen Z. So Jen, so millennials, a lot of millennials got through high school without internet porn, unless you were really savvy, um, you know, early computer geek. Uh, most millennials would would have gotten through high school without, um, you know, internet porn today. But Gen Z, I mean, certainly anyone born, you know, after 1990. Um, they are growing up with internet porn. And so a lot of them are, what we're seeing now is that uh, teens, particularly younger teens, are seeing all kinds of sex before they've even kissed anyone or held hands or or something. So uh, to give you an example, you might have, you know, millennials and Gen Xers might have um, certainly seen porn, maybe even seen anal sex. Um, but it was most likely when they're closer to 18 after they've already had some sexual experiences, I'm certainly not very frequent. Uh, they might see that kind of, you know, they might see various sex acts in, um, a magazine. Whereas today, you know, you can be a young person and see 20 person gangbangs, um, double penetration, uh, crying during Felicio, uh, slapping, gagging, choking, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, You know, the depiction of sex with you hope they're 18, but they look like they're 12. Um, You know, that kind of stuff, like, like I couldn't have seen that if I wanted to, I would have, as a teen, if I had heard about that kind of stuff, like I couldn't, there's no way I could have found that even if I wanted to let alone, um, you know, just seeing it because you're Googling blowjob because you want to know what that means. Uh, So it is definitely um, helping younger folks learn about not just sex, but a lot of different, uh, to, to learn not just about sex, but to learn about a lot of different kinds of sex and even violent sex before they have like I said, held hands, kiss somebody, you know, have any kind of reference for themselves, essentially to compare to real life. So um, 
So for somebody like me, who's really interested in particular in adolescent sexual development and sexual socialization and how we have those those first sexual experiences, you know, one of the main research questions we have is, is does this exposure matter? Does does seeing or even masturbating to, you know, gangbangs, double penetration, uh, choking during sex, does that fundamentally change somebody's first sexual experiences with a real life human being? We don't really have data to to say too much on that for sure. We're just still sort of speculating and exploring. Wow, but but when when will the data for that be available, and how many people are waiting to 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 find out the answer to that question? Because it sounds like an overwhelming um, sensory overload to an entire generation of people who we we hope are going to be the next generation of well balanced adults. Are we are we is that likely? Given that they're, that they're they're seeing this much all at one go. Well, I mean, for any research funders out there, I'd love some money to collect the data, right? It's hard to find um, pots of money to do research where we can ask teens about their pornography experiences, um, as you can imagine. For legal reasons, um, we also need to get parental consent. Um, A lot of people believe that if you even ask teens about porn, they'd be more likely then to go see it, use it, explore it. Um, So I don't know if we're going to get the data that we need. The data that we would need, though, is is being able to follow young people from, say, middle school uh, into their high school years so that we can get some data on what their attitudes, expectations, experiences are before they start using porn frequently. And then see, you know, how are the kids doing who, you know, had some sexual experiences before they went down the porn rabbit hole versus those who went down that porn rabbit hole really early um, and then transitioned to in-person sexual experiences. So those are the data. That's the design we would need uh, that we don't have yet. Um, But as far as your as far as the question in terms of how it would how this is shaping young people to grow up and be great adults. That is also a big question mark. I was in, um, I was on a panel um, a month ago and we were discussing, discussing this point. And one of the panelists had said, you know, um, knowing what we know about how pornography may shape ideas about sex, gender, violence, if we have folks that are growing up on that and then they're becoming senators, um, you know, people who pass legislation, who do school policy work, who, um, you know, implement sexual violence prevention programming or response, uh, what does that mean, right? As are are they going to be, is that going to impact their ability to do their jobs well? And that is a really interesting question that I think we need to really explore and and think critically about, given what we do know about how um, pornography is associated with different attitude changes, behavioral expectations, et cetera. So are the right people posing the right questions in the right forums, or is there just an element of squeamishness where people are just unwilling to engage with this. They'd rather 
they'd rather not think that kids are doing this when, quite frankly, they clearly are. And um, what, yeah, what, what are, are the right people having the right conversations? No, the answer is definitely no. Okay. Uh, we know for a fact that parents are not talking to kids. They are squeamish. Uh, even parents who feel confident about, uh, you know, where do babies come from, uh, how to talk about menstruation or contraception, have no idea how to talk about porn. Uh, sex educators are, you know, there's a bunch of red tape. They can't talk about porn um, in school-based sex education uh, for numbers, for numerous reasons in the States. Um, but it's even true in, you know, other Western countries, uh, and Eastern countries for that matter. But, uh, yeah, we're not having the right conversations. Uh, a lot of the people who are having the conversations, um, in, you know, faith circles or, um, you know, um, clergy people, that type of thing. Um, sometimes those conversations can cannot be as effective as you'd want them to be because they tend to be more fear-based and talk about pornography as um, sinful. And regardless of, of your religious beliefs, um, my ideas about talking to young kids in particular or even teens about porn is really acknowledging acknowledging and validating their curiosity because as soon as anybody feels shame or embarrassment about any kind of behavior um, whether they're lying about stealing cookies from a cookie jar or they're you know they're ashamed for some other you know reason kids are not going to go to adults when they feel ashamed and so really emphasizing that pornography is a sin or that uh, it's really shameful is not going to help, you know, move those conversations forward um, and open up the door to other conversations because there's going to be so much fear and shame there. Now, if that's a value that you have about pornography, a lot of parents, a lot of groups have that value. Um, it you can still communicate that value if that's something that you feel strongly about. So even if there is this perspective from parents, faith leaders, whatever, that pornography is um, sinful or shameful, which I'm I'm not here to judge about religious perspectives at all. Um, those are okay values to communicate if you need to, but the shame in, needs to be removed from the human curiosity. And, and there needs to be a foundation where children and teens know that um, having sexual feelings, sexual thoughts, sexual desires are just a part of being human, um, being aroused by sexual imagery or for little kids. Um, I explain that as like getting butterflies in your tummy. You might feel a little queasy if you see this stuff. Um, it might make you kind of flush or red because they don't know what sexual arousal is, you know, really kind of paving a path that those are just normal processes. Um, and that is just how our bodies and minds react to sexual imagery, you know, period, I think is where a lot of the important conversations need to start. And instead, they start with this is horrible content um, that's 
damaging to see. And those can be conversations at a different point. But um, when we start with those kinds of messages, it's it's going to squash any kind of conversation about sex or porn, you know, from happening again. That does sound like something of a, a ticking porn time bomb then, if, if, <laughs> if, if we're not having that conversation. Um, and... And just and at the same time, you you mentioned earlier that the um, there is a change in the dynamic of um, producers and consumers, and perhaps that the, the two roles coming together. We have OnlyFans and platforms like this, and so can you tell us a little bit about how that's changed pornography? Yeah, so I think um, some of the positive uh, progression of cheaper. Uh, technology has been a platform like OnlyFans, where somebody who is a sex worker, um, a cyber sex worker, you know, a porn performer can take control of that experience. And, you know, they don't have a boss, they're their own boss, uh, they create their own hours, they're in charge of what they release. They're in charge, you know, they get to, to decide what's not released. So there's a lot more control and safety there. Um, on the other hand, though, again, you know, it's 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 there's no technology that's going to make something completely 100 percent safe, foolproof, because there's evidence now that, uh, you know, people create OnlyFans sites as well to sexually exploit, you know, others, youth young people, poor people in particular. And so um, OnlyFans isn't the perfect solution to this, but it does provide an easier uh, platform. It does provide a platform that can make uh, self-production a little safer, um, maybe even financially more profitable for folks. Uh, Pornhub had their own like verified models similar accounts uh, situation that um, I think has since been either removed or I don't quite know the, um, I don't quite know what happened, but it was in jeopardy where they removed some of the, um, the way that those verified models could get paid because a few years ago they were, found to be hosting, uh, you know, non-consensual content. So I'm not sure what happened um, since then. There's a documentary that was released on Netflix called Money Shot, um, the Pornhub story, and that one is, uh, explains it in detail. But my uh, academic disclaimer is, you know, documentary films are not always based in fact. They're still very much opinion based, but it can help uh, get conversations going. I guess the summary there would be it's the uberfication of porn, isn't it? it it's, it's making people a little bit more self-service, if that's a phrase that you can use for, for porn. Sure. Um, and, and then on top of all of this, we get AI um, in 2023 and the... Um, the generative images and text and videos that we're seeing now, and so what? Where does that lead us? You know, if if all of a sudden we can we can have anything and everything in video form, um, and we can exploit 
absolutely not a, a person isn't exploited, but there is a video of a person being exploited. Where does that leave society? Oh, that is going to be the question of the next decade, right? Uh, we started having some of these conversations early with um, animated, you know, there was um, a lot of animated porn coming, you know, the rise of, of that five, six, ten years ago. I mean, it's been around forever, but the popularization of it and distribution of it on tube sites, um, because if it's just an animated uh, drawing, does it matter if or, you know, video, if it's rape or bestiality, incest, uh, child sexual abuse. Uh, and, you know, from from my perspective, I, you know, I don't I'm not I'm not into legal law research. Um, I so I can't comment on how that would impact things legally. I do know, though, that with more um, very basic principles of media psychology in advertising, the more we see something, the more we recognize it as normal and as okay. So if AI, animation, porn, whatever, makes sexual violence more visible, more frequently consumed, um, whether it's a real human being or not, then if we apply principles of advertising to that, then we are certainly going to go down a path where we are, where we're just accustomed and we and we don't recognize the harm that that is really there for people in real life. And so I do worry about that, um, especially in a post Me Too world where there's a lot of conversation on the harms of sexual violence. Um, and sexual harassment in and, and various different forms. Um, but if we're all secretly watching it, you know, online or, or seeing more and more images of it on the internet, are we then, um, you know, what we call more desensitized to the gravity of those experiences and then therefore less likely to, um, you know, vote on legislation that might increase, um, you know, uh, federal dollars, tax dollars to investigate, you know, sexual violence or or um, child sexual abuse material online being exchanged. You know, it costs a lot of money to do those kinds of investigations. And a lot of times, even if there is a willing um, prosecutor and there is a survivor who wants to go ahead with legal action, it still costs money to track you know, to track people down and to get evidence and things like that. So, um, so I do think there are legal, there are legal implications for, and social implications for what exposure to that kind of imagery may do to us, even though it's not a real person being exploited, but we don't, we don't know for sure, for sure. Right. Again, because we don't have data to really to draw upon, um, but I, I tend to go, I tend to think broadly and try to apply a lot of what we know about other types of media to sexual media because there's so much red tape for researching sexualized media. 
a lot of these principles that we know are true for food advertising, clothing advertising, for, you know, just film and TV uh, processes and uh, success stories. If we apply those same concepts to sexualized media, um, we can connect some dots that we might then need to to connect to make some smart choices about, uh, you know, our kids in particular, but yeah. Again, do, do we have any confidence that the right people are having the right conversations around this? Or, or is it another one where people just don't want to engage? La, 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 I can't hear you. I'm going to just not engage in this. Is that is that accurate? Well, I know in the U.S., it's definitely the latter, as you're saying. There's a People are very afraid to have these conversations in scientific circles, also political circles, um, social circles, religious circles. It is definitely a taboo topic still. Even if you are like me and, and hundreds of other folks who are really just data-driven and focused on the science of what's going on, and really trying to guide conversation back to those scientific principles instead of, you know, talking about it from a moral perspective. Um, but we don't have enough people who are willing to, who have the power to make some changes and then are willing then to implement those changes. So for example, I do a lot of work with sex education and media literacy, both development, evaluation, and advocacy. Um, and even people who are really open to uh, these ideas, who agree that the media, you know, that porn and sexualized media are just have exploded to a point where we have to do something about it, just just from an education perspective, you know, let alone other perspectives, but are afraid to to propose policy changes that say, hey, our school-based sex education needs to incorporate information about pornography or our school's sexual misconduct policy needs to include information about, you know, nude images exchanged and disseminated throughout a school. Uh, so there are, you know, there's just people who are, the people in power are still, they want to stay in power, you know, they don't want to bring up these controversial topics. So unfortunately, no, we do not have um, the right people having the right conversations. But I think the point is that whilst they might not have wanted to have those conversations in the past, there there is a an urgent need for these conversations to be had, given the perfect storm of technology and AI and just more immersive technology. I mean, virtual reality and all these things coming together at once means that these conversations, I guess, must be had now. Otherwise, otherwise, what what happens if we don't have these conversations in 20, 30 years' time? Where where does it lead us? Well, so one of the things that I really encourage my college students, you know, because because I have I have direct access to them, frequent access to them, we can have these conversations over longer periods of time. Is that you have to have a sex tech conversation with your romantic partners. So for example, we have a study um, that's under review, but other people have researched this topic that's, that is um, attitudes toward uh, sex robots, VR porn, um, you know, uh, you know, even um, smart, you know, sex toys and things like that. And what we do know is that people, in, what we found in, in our study, even though it's not the primary 
uh, finding, but it's been shown in other studies too, is that the more immersive, interactive, and realistic uh, sex tech is, the more people perceive that to be a threat to a relationship, a type of betrayal, um, you know, or or cheating. And so uh, there needs to be a discussion between partners about, you know, how do we use porn in our relationship or do we use porn individually? Do we use, you know, sex robots individually? Do we do live camming with, you know, uh, models or, or other couples even on OnlyFans? These are kind of boundaries that that should be discussed ahead of time um, and and updated as necessary. Uh, and so, you know, so that so that conversation, I think, has to happen and is being pushed to happen more because it's more in your face versus, you know, porn 10, 20 years ago uh, could easily could more easily just be a solo activity that's that's not discussed or talked about. But um, but I one of the things I emphasize in my human sexuality class, I talked about in my TEDx talk. And the thing that I really think is the most important piece to think when we're thinking about all of this is uh, sexual technology has kind of always been there. It's it's changing uh, faster than it has in the past. Um, it's certainly becoming more, all of our technology is becoming more immersive and interactive. And we want to make sure that those experiences are not um, negatively impacting our real life experiences because the rewards that we get from real life sexual experiences, real life friendships, real life face-to-face conversations, um, they are, you know, rejuvenating, they are life-giving, they are what make our lives meaningful, enjoyable, um, and the technology experiences don't quite have the ability to tick all of those boxes yet. And so we want to make sure that even though they're easy um, to use, that they're not becoming something that we are doing instead of our in-person um, relationship. So I use the um, I use a text message example. A lot of folks throughout the last 10 years, have said, oh, nobody talks anymore. Nobody knows how to have a conversation anymore. Everybody's just texting. Oh, you know, technology's killing communication. That's a simple, very oversimplified way to look at it because in many ways, texting has improved communication because it's increased it, especially, you know, in times where it was not possible before. So for example, when I'm about to give a talk that I'm nervous about, um, I can receive a text message from my husband and be reminded of his love. Um, you know, parents can send text messages to their kids and people are texting, you know, when they're about to take off on an airplane. That was not possible before um, technology. Those are great things because they're adding communication when communication was not possible before. And so we kind of want to think about our sex tech in the same way. Is it... Is it something that we use as sprinkles on a cake? Um, maybe the icing on the cake, but we don't want it to be the actual cake. We want the actual cake to still be our human experiences. And I'm sure if there's 
physical disabilities, you know, other limitations, you're in a long distance relationship, you're, you know, single, um, you know, then those those tools are there to meet some sexual needs. But as soon as you start gravitating towards those tools instead of real life human beings or particular, particularly a long term partner, um, that's when you're going to start to see more costs to the benefit of the sex tech. You're going to see a lot more um, negative consequences than somebody who might be able to just use it infrequently. Um, and, and I think that is what we want to what we want to kind of think about sex tech at this point, at least, is something that and and AI, I mean, just porn in general, virtual reality porn, um, if it becomes your main source of sexual fulfillment, that's probably not going to be great for you long term. You you brought the food analogy there, and and you've mentioned in the past that um, you know fast food, convenience food, is something that humanity is has developed over time, and it's useful on occasion. But if you eat fast food all the time, you're going to get ill. It's, so are there similarities there? Is that what we're looking at? I mean, I love that analogy because it seems to, you know, pretty, it seems to set the stage to have, you know, deeper conversations about this talk. I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, you know, with the sex and food thing. But yeah, we've seen, um, you know, we were so excited about fast food and going to McDonald's and things like that, you know, in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And then it really reached a precipice where we're seeing an obesity epidemic. People, instead of, you know, stopping by McDonald's as they go on a long car ride, now they're doing it every night after work. Um, yeah, it's just a very different way to get your needs met. And unfortunately, with the really easy, cheap, fast, common um, ways of doing things, you know, for example, uh, you know, then those those still have a cost. And, um, you know, Amazon is a great example, too, of it. I mean, I use Amazon. I love being able to get something to my house the next day. But I know that there's a cost to that. I am ignoring my budget usually because I'm buying a bunch of stuff without thinking about how much I'm spending. Um, and there's a huge environmental cost to what's going on with somebody driving that truck around our you know, block over and over multiple times a day, delivering everybody's crap. Um, there's a cost to that. So we want to kind of also think about what is the cost of this cheap, easy technological sex um, is the cost our intimacy, our humanity? I sure hope not. But I think for for a, a, a small portion of the population, it is absolutely costing them um, their human relationships. And that is beyond tragic. Um, it's not going to happen to everybody who uses porn or sex tech, but um, just just like not everybody who uses who goes to McDonald's is going to become 400 pounds. Um, but for a small proportion or a growing proportion of people, you know, fast food is killing them. And for a small proportion, but a growing proportion of people online, you know, gambling, gaming, shopping um, is really just being destructive in their lives. And we can see how 
the online immersive sex world could do that too. The potential dangers of convenience and, and perhaps how the individual needs to realize that they have to make decisions themselves. I keep asking if the right people are having the right conversations, but I guess the best conversation is the individual having a conversation with themselves about how they're going to make use of all these things. Yeah. And, you know, it's in that, and again, maybe, and again, yes. And that is in certainly in America, that is our perspective, right? It's on the individual. Um, but we could also think about it societally and uh in terms of education, I w- would love it if we had more conversation with young people in particular about um, their sexual experiences and how they want to incorporate, you know, sex into their life. Like, what does sex mean to them? Um, we need to have deeper conversations about, you know, people's sexual values, desires, interests, um, apart from whatever they're watching, you know, in porn. Um so that people can really just think more critically about sex. Part of these, the, the silence and lack thereof of these conversations, I think might make people a little bit too vulnerable then. And so that they're not able to have those conversations with themselves of like, how is this impacting me? Because they've never thought about how anything's impacting them. They've never been given that tool or perspective. So I think the younger we can do that with, that you know the better so for example um i'm having that conversation with my kids about video games and youtube and tv um because they just can't get enough of that stuff right and we talk about you know your brain and how your brain's reacting to it and how it's really entertaining and how and i talk about my own computer use with social media and scrolling and things um, but there's a cost to that. There's, there's, um, you know, there's going to be, what are you, what are you missing out on because you're not doing these other things? You know, they like, uh, karate and dance and art and pets and, you know, all sorts of stuff that they aren't doing if they're just, you know, super hyper-focused on when they can just watch YouTube for an hour or play a video game or whatever, Um, Because it's got a hold of their brains Uh, and they are kind of starting to think like, okay, yeah, I can see that. And yeah, I do. I do like obsess about it and think about it all the time. And, you know, there's so there's a cost to those things. So I'm hoping by laying those foundations um, of, of technology and computers and things. And we talk about that with sugar and food um, that when we're, now integrating sex tech conversations over the years, they can kind of apply that same concept. And and that's what I would recommend. That's what I recommend to my friends and people I get invited to give talks with, with parents, if they have teens or college students or even middle schoolers is to talk about, um, you know, how great sex and masturbation can be. And then, you know, how easy um, it is much easier. It is with technology, but there's a cost to that that convenience. I'm going to be making sure that I send a link to this video to my kids. I can tell you that <laughs> I want I want them to hear the nuanced details of this interview. Um, so I will certainly be forwarding the YouTube link to my kids. And let's let's quickly talk about pop culture, popular culture, because this is where a lot of 
uh, younger folk um, and older folk will be getting a lot of their um, societal um, lessons from. What 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 stands out for you then in terms of movies or books or TV shows that you've seen and you thought they've got a point there, or perhaps the ones where you think, my God, that is disinformation. Oh gosh, yeah. So my my favorite show to recommend to everybody is Sex Education on Netflix. Um, it is a wonderful uh, depiction of you know it's fictional, but a depiction of teenagers in the UK. Uh, you know, in many ways, they're they're way wise beyond their years. They're very um, they're very verbose. And so a lot of it's kind of unrealistic, but I love that the way that the show, um, the way that the show is framed really respects and honors that they are sexual people, you know, at that age and stage of life. And there is a lot of, of really solid information in it too, in terms of, um, realistic depictions of things and great uh, models for having conversations about sex and porn um, and and lots of models for not having the, you know have, have those conversations gone wrong but I'm hoping but I I think that with that show uh, I think if more parents watched it we know it's popular among teens and young adults but if more parents watched it perhaps their embarrassment would reduce a little bit um, so that they'd feel more empowered to have those conversations. There are so many great documentaries as well. So Hot Girls Wanted, um, it's getting a little old now, I guess, but it is a great um, documentary on Netflix to get uh, the conversation going about, you know, camming and amateur porn models and and how that really became exploitative because in the early 2000s there was this big push to do you know kind of like there was in the early earlier porn um movement days of the 70s and 80s where there was this push to just show real people having real sex and that that would then counteract the harms of more exploitative porn and in the early 2000s there was a big movement for amateur porn to do to do that with the internet by you know, making anybody kind of be able to distribute their own porn. Um, but then that was co-opted as they all are. Right. And then OnlyFans emerges and then that was co-opted. So so um, even though the intention and for a lot of folks can be good, then exploitation can kind of come in. But Hot Girls Wanted does a great job of that. Like I mentioned before, Money Shot, um, the Pornhub story is a great uh, documentary as well. And I also love The Principles of Pleasure on Netflix. That is a great documentary about um, sexual pleasure and well-being in particular for women, but um, is a great conversation starter, I think, for any gender. But Fifty Shades of Grey is not a great example of, of great sex education uh, for many reasons. So I would not recommend Fifty Shades of Grey. It could be fun to watch, but it's not something you'd want to emulate. Uh, Netflix is, I think, an amazing thing um, in that all of the different um, nationalities, all the different um, um, cultures are, are putting their own popular culture onto there, and it's all on one mm -hmm. common platform. And so we're all seeing South Korean 
um, you know, um, content for the first time, really. I mean, us geeks might have watched, you know, Japanese J-horror for in, in the early autism and, and this, but Netflix um, and the other aggregators that are using different um, societies strikes me as, as a fascinating thing. Um, and I've never even thought about it until we now talked about adult entertainment, but mm. that kind of bringing together, because back into the interview, perhaps maybe, you know, different societies have got different ideas of what adult entertainment is that is, you know, suitable for, for broadcast. Is that right? I mean, I, I've lived in Spain in the past and, um, you know, what their idea of what en- what entertainment was is not, wouldn't be what would normally be in the UK or, or in the US. Um, so different societies have got different ideas of adult entertainment. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it is, it is very much culturally bound and and as we can see across time and across cultures an idea of what is actually explicit you know there's been you know actual laws written about what is considered soft core pornography versus hardcore um you know what is rated r versus nc17 um, and we're seeing shifts in in what in what all of those distinctions how how those distinctions are actually defined um but it's interesting that you do yeah that with netflix and other streaming platforms that do have this international content and audience yeah what is considered what is considered x-rated versus i mean because people have commented on and i've certainly noticed um you know, more regular content is becoming very sexually explicit. You know, we have Bridgerton uh, that was really popular recently, very sexually explicit. Um, shows like uh, Sex Life on Netflix. And so those, a lot of the scenes in those shows would have been more like the HBO After Dark Cinemax, you know, nighttime viewing in the 90s right that would not have been just available for anybody so it has definitely changed and it is culture culturally bound for sure i mean you can't go to there's a lot of countries um in the global south uh you know in asia that you cannot see uh certain body parts that a lot of stuff is cut out i mean but, but we know that their kids are watching that uncensored porn, aren't we? Don't we? I mean, they, I mean they, people are going to find it no matter what, aren't they? Yeah. Subscribe to the Hello Computer channel here on YouTube to hear more interviews with experts as the world comes to terms with thinking machines.